Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on July 11, 2018. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and joining me today in the studio is Swedish diplomat Martina Auberi Somoji. Did I get it right? We'll be talking about working as a diplomat in North Korea. Once again, NK News is offering a free year's subscription to one reviewer who reviews our podcast not only at iTunes, but also at other good podcast platforms. And you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership will continue to grow. So today's guest, Martina Oberi Somoji, moved to Pyongyang just about two years ago to take up the position of Deputy Head of Mission at the Swedish Embassy. Previously, she had worked for two years at the Ministry for Foreign Affairs in Stockholm, and prior to that, she was posted to the Swedish Embassy in Beijing, where she worked on issues related to China's foreign and security policy. While in Beijing, Martina spent a significant amount of time working on DPRK-related issues, and it was at this time that her interest in the country went from a general curiosity and interest to a determination to take up a posting at the Swedish Embassy in Pyongyang in the future. So, Martina, a lot of people visit the DPRK and come out with stories like their Marco Polo, as if they're the first and only person to see something real in North Korea. And other people speak with great certainty about things as if their subjective experience should be universal for everybody. I think it's probably a human trait, and I know I've been guilty of it too at times, but you specifically want to avoid that. So how would you like to start? Um, yes, I would like to avoid, avoid that. And um, thank you for having me here today. Um, but I wanted to briefly touch upon this topic um, before kicking off our conversation. And, and even before doing that, I should probably mention that in agreeing to participate on this po podcast and in deciding on the topics um, to cover, there were a few considerations that needed to be made. Um, first of all, there are topics which we, as Sweden, discuss bilaterally. Um, only with our DPRK counterparts. Mm -hmm. And secondly, there are other topics on which my ministry back in, in capital in Stockholm are the most suited to be our spokesperson on. Um, and on what you just mentioned, I do think it's important to underline that for anyone visiting the DPRK, even if it's for a period of several years, you only get to see a snapshot of the whole picture and different persons can definitely experience these snapshots differently. And so while, while I fully support the idea of sharing impressions from the ground in the DPRK, mm -hmm. um, whoever receives these impressions on the other end should generally not take them as an absolute truth. Um, and I'm not implying at all that others, whether it's journalists, tourists or residents um, in Pyongyang, are deliberately distorting the truth in any way. Um, but just that it's such a changing and multifaceted, if you want, environment that people might have generally different stories to tell on the same topic. And I think this should be considered. Now, that's probably true of every country in the world, isn't it? Or any group of people or human community that we only see a part of it, that we don't see the whole. So why do you think it's important to, to highlight this when we talk about North Korea as opposed to, say, I don't know, Australia or, or Sweden? Because the available sources um, are so much fewer when it comes to the DPRK. Um, the number of people who have visited, even though if it's growing for year by year, which is which is positive, is still fairly limited. But also you, it's very difficult to verify anything you hear by going on the internet. And is it also perhaps because the DPRK government, you know, when whether we're there working in, in your case or whether we're there as a tourist, as I've been there a couple of times, uh, that the, the government of that country seems to like 
to make sure that people only see a limited view of things? Um, I think that's certainly true um, to some extent. If you go as a tourist for a, for a brief trip, um, of course, you will not have time to see the whole country and you will also be limited in what you get to see when you're in the country. Um, and many people, as I understand, they also stay in Pyongyang and they don't see so much of, of other parts of the country. Um, but even when you work there, it's really, it can be, maybe I happen to have a good relationship with my local colleagues and that will give me one image of a, of a certain situation and someone else will maybe on that day not have a good, mm-hmm. uh, be not, not be on good ter- terms with, with his or her colleague and then they might be told a slightly different, different version on, on the same issue. Yeah, okay, that seems fair enough. And we'll come back to this theme of... Uh... Um, of, of what you're allowed to see and not allowed to see later on in the conversation. So first of all, just as background, how long has Sweden had a, a, an embassy in North Korea? Um, Sweden and the DPRK established diplomatic relations 45 years ago this year, which makes it 1973. At that time, Sweden was the first Western country to do so. Mm. Um, and we then opened the embassy in Pyongyang in 1975. Now, th- this is... Uh, I- as further background or context, this is shortly after the 1972, what's the name of it? Is it the joint communique or the joint statement? Anyway, North and South Korea had these uh, Red Cross talks in 1972, and they uh, released uh, a statement or a communique, which I think started the ball rolling for a number of countries, because in the 1970s, as you say, Sweden was the first Western one. Uh, I know Australia did also uh, in 1975. They even opened an embassy uh, in, in Pyongyang in 75. So there was a number of countries after the that 72 joint communique uh, who felt that now is the time to recognize both South Korea and North Korea. Okay, so how many Swedish diplomats are at the embassy in Pyongyang right now? Well, no, not, not right now because you're here. Yes, exactly. But, uh, when you're there in Pyongyang, how many embassies are, are posted there? Embassies, how many diplomats are posted there? Yeah, so in the beginning, the embassy was manned by just one person mm. or one Swedish person. Um, but now we've grown to the stagger number of two diplomats. Wow. But as you mentioned, in reality, with business trips and holidays taking up some of our time, um, in reality, you're, in fact, the only person or only diplomat in in the country for uh, quite a significant part of the year. Wow. Um, And I should also mention that in addition to to these two diplomats, we currently have six Korean staff working on our team as well. Okay, so you're you're outnumbered by by the local staff. (laughs) Yes, by far. The ping pong tournaments don't go our way. Oh, dear. Uh, So now in the early 2000s, Swedish diplomat Eric Cornell published a book called North Korea Under Communism, Report of an Envoy to Paradise. And this was a rare account at that time of a a foreign diplomat uh, about life and work in North Korea. Uh, and he opened the embassy in 1975 and served there as charge d'affaires until 77. Uh, I've read that book, but that was quite a while ago. And also on our website, uh, which of course for our listeners is www.nknews.org, we published an interview with August Borg, one of your predecessors in March ni- uh, 2015. Have you read either the book or Mr. Borg's account? And are their experiences much different from yours? Um, I've read both of those accounts. Um, and there was also an interview with myself published, I think, on your website in late 2016, right, which I should probably go back and read. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that anyone who's visited Pyongyang could probably appreciate that the city must have changed um, quite a bit since the 1970s. Mm. Um, I think if Mr. Cornell went back to the DPRK today, I'm sure that on the surface, at least, he would find himself in, in quite a different place and setting compared to the time when he was posted there himself. Um, at the same time, from a, perspe- a professional perspective, um, 
I would think that he would still recognize many of the ways of, of doing business in, in DPRK. And since I took over not only the work of Mr. Borg, but also his apartment ah. and to some extent his social circles, right. um, <laughs> this is an easier comparison for me personally to make. Um, and the changes haven't been as dramatic um, as compared to the late 1970s. My impression is that um, August and I shared many similar experiences. Luckily, during my time, we haven't had to deal with the complications of the Ebola quarantine ah. that was in place for part of his stay in the DPRK. On the other hand, we certainly faced quite a few challenges in dealing with the very tense situation that prevailed during most of 2017. Yeah. Um, just practically, how's the electricity supply these days? Do you carry a, a flashlight or electric torch with you? So within the diplomatic compo compound where we have the embassy, the, our official residence and also my apartment, the supply of electricity is generally quite fine. The quality, however, and I will refrain from defining quality in more technical terms, um, is not always up to standard. And we do experience periods of quite severe technical difficulties in the embassy in particular, um, which come as a consequence of substandard electricity supply. And to at least partially deal with these problems, we have a backup generator and much of our equipment is also connected to so-called UPSs and, and power stabilizers. Right. But I should underline that the situation outside this compound where we are operating seems to be quite different. And, and once you leave Pyongyang, it's a completely different situation where electricity supply is generally much more limited. I do carry a flashlight most of the time, but I don't use it that much anymore. And my impression is that, and now I'm again talking outside of, of our compound, the lack of lights is not always because of a direct lack of supply mm -hmm. at that particular time, but more because of energy saving efforts. Saving, okay. So it's a deliberate uh, policy to, what is it, after a certain hour that... Uh lights are turned off or um that and also i think according to the usage of, of the facilities that you are in if you visit a place it's quite common that that when you exit the room which you've been have a meeting in or, or spending time in for one reason or the other someone will turning turn off the lights as you leave this room and another example as you mentioned the timing um could be just take the example of the streets of downtown pyongyang if you are there during the early evening hours, when it's already dark outside, but, but still early, they will be quite brightly lit up, I would say. Yeah. Um, whilst if you happen to be outside after midnight or after 1 a.m., when not many people are on the streets, it's a much different situation. It can be very dark with no streetlights and also no cars, basically, um, and no lights on the buildings. One thing I noticed in, uh, in North Korean buildings, both in North Korea and also North Korean-run restaurants in China, is that uh, the, the light switch inside a room will usually have a little sticker on it that says, uh, who is the person responsible for turning that light off? It's part of the, the energy-saving policy. So everyone who works there uh, has a certain number of switches. And you know, if, if a light in a room is left on for no good reason, that person is to be blamed for it. Is this also the same in the, uh, in the Swedish embassy? Do your light switches have names on them? <laughs> no, they don't. But, but I must say that my Korean colleagues are very good at switching the lights off, maybe not during daytime, but as they leave the office, they will, they will turn the lights off. Right, they're very conscientious. Oh, that's good. Uh, what about the, uh, the water supply? Has that improved? since uh, August was there in, in early 2015? Yes, but again, my impression is that there's a big difference between the international compound and other parts of the city and the countryside. 
Um, and in our compound, if we start there again, mm-hmm. the supply is somewhat continuous. Um, and I do have a feeling that it's become more steady over the past two years that I've been there. Does the compound have its own water pumping facility then? It does somehow. And, and not only my residential compound, but I think it belongs to the larger diplomatic uh, mm-hmm. area. Um, but with that being said, there are definitely periods of one to two days when there is basically no water. And there are a lot of shorter periods of time when, when the supply is cut off as well. All right. Um, now, can you tell us a little bit about the Swedish embassy's role as protecting power in North Korea? What does that mean and who do you protect? Sure. Very briefly, it means that Sweden has agreed with the United States um, to represent the consular interest of U.S. nationals in the DPRK who might need support for one reason or another. Um, and I should underline that it's primarily the consular interest that, that we represent. So if it comes to our attention that a U.S. national is in need of support, we will offer this to the best of, of our ability and work as hard as we possibly can to resolve in, in that situation. I won't go into much more detail than that at this point, maybe, but, but it's definitely been some of the most challenging work that me and my colleagues have engaged in on, on a professional but also personal level. Yeah. It's not just the US, is it? That There are other countries that you protect too, aren't there? Mm, there are. Um, Australia and Canada. And then within the EU and Schengen countries, we have sort of, to some extent, divided up the other countries as well. So we, we take... We pay extra attention to the Nordic citizens. Of course, yeah, it makes sense. And, and who takes the other country, the other EU Schengen area countries? So some of, the, as you know, not all the EU countries are represented in in the DPRK. So right. so some of the ones who are represented take care of some of ah, the of other course. ones. Yep. But as an EU citizen, my understanding is that you actually have the possibility to turn to any EU embassy for, ah. for help if needed. Okay, well, that's handy to know uh, <laughs> for people, yeah. I want to talk a bit about the day-to-day work of a diplomat in the DPRK. So uh, tell us about communication with your North Korean counterparts at the foreign ministry. How does it work? Is it Do you phone them? Do you send a letter? Can you fax them? Does anyone at the foreign ministry use email? So much of our communication with the DPRK counterparts goes through the embassy's interpreter, and the, That's a, it sounds a bit unorthodox uh, for, for other countries. Possibly, but um, this is how we roll in, in Pyongyang. Right, that's how you roll in Pyongyang. Okay, so the interpreter in your embassy is technically a member of the Foreign Affairs Ministry. He is, I think, technically belonging to the General Service Bureau, but yes, from he comes from a, a North Korean entity. All right, so you would say if you wanted to communicate something, you would tell the interpreter and the interpreter would then feed it back to the foreign ministry? Exactly. So depending a little bit on the matter, he will uh, liaise either by phone uh, with the most usually, most usually the, the MFA or he or we, he and the embassy together will submit what we call a note verbal, which is basically a diplomatic letter in which you convey a message or a question or a request. And so on most matters, we will we will start in this end. Um, and then the aim will be to set up a meeting with our counterparts. And at times, it's on a few occasions, it's also possible to set up a phone call mm-hmm. with at least some of our counterparts. But this, again, usually requires prior coordination by this interpreter. Does having an interpreter working in the embassy, does that speed things up or does it actually slow things down? I'm thinking um, compared to when you worked in Beijing and you were trying to communicate with uh, with Chinese counterparts, is it faster? Is it slower? How is it? I'm not sure. Maybe Beijing is not the best example because Sometimes even there, we had to go through quite formal um, channels. But I definitely, of course, have colleagues in, in other countries where, where you could have a much more direct interaction with your um, 
host country officials. Given the, the circumstances under which we are working in the DPRK, I am sometimes quite happy that we mm. have him to turn to and we can also press things through him. And of course, he is caught in a, in a bit of a different, uh, difficult sorry, situation, mm. um, having to sort of convey our request. And also when we are not happy, he has to convey that. Yeah. And on the other hand, he is also stuck with conveying negative uh, right. messages from the DPRK side to us. Uh, now, you at the embassy, of course, um, as far as I know, all embassies have full internet access, right? They're able to, you're able to use internet just as you would back in, in, in Sweden. Is that more or less the case? In our embassy, yes, that's the case. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm reading um, Taeyong Ho's uh, memoir of his time working at the foreign ministry. And he says, uh, I'd like to talk to this. I've interviewed him before for the podcast, but that was before I started reading the book. So I'd like to have him back on again because it's interesting. He says in the early 1990s, I think perhaps even before Kim Il-sung uh, had died in 94, that within the foreign ministry, they had some kind of intra, um, an internal system of, of electronic mail that they were able to con convey information from an embassy abroad to the foreign ministry by some kind of electronic mail. So it's, yeah, that, that was a lot earlier than I had expected in the early 1990s. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting to hear. And I mean, I can only assume that they have some sort of mechanism for communicating among themselves. Right, well. but not with other people or organizations, as far as we know. As far as we know. Right. Okay, so uh, what about meetings then with uh, with North Korean foreign ministry officials? How do they usually go? Um, so in general, setting up these meetings, even though the process of getting there, it's, it's a bit complicated. If, if it's about a meeting to discuss a bilateral issue, it's, it's not a problem. Um, as long as the meeting can take place on a Monday to Thursday. On Fridays, the foreign ministry does in general not accept meeting with foreigners. At meetings, do both sides usually just read out prepared statements or is there actual conversation? I would say there, there's both. Um, and I have experienced both ways, definitely, probably depending quite a lot on the topic and context. But I, I want to make the, the note as well that in the diplomatic world, showing up to a meeting with a prepared message that needs to be delivered is, is not at all unique to the DPRK. Sometimes the way of conducting diplomatic business in any country, even though it's possibly a more commonly used practice in the DPRK than in other places. But with this being said, we, we almost at every meeting, there is also a part of conversation involved. And are they normally held at a certain location? They are. So the normal procedure would be that we would go to the ministry or authority in question um, that we are meeting with. And this includes the foreign ministry. But for the last couple of months or a bit more, even almost a year now, um, the foreign ministry has been under going some renovation work. Um, so in this case, they have offered meeting spaces in other public buildings or sometimes in, in meeting facilities. Do they ever come to your embassy? Instead. Generally, we meet uh, in, in, in their premises. Um, but we do, however, both the ambassador and myself meet them also over lunch or, or dinner and either at a restaurant out in the city or, or we invite them to one of our residences. Now, uh, here's a potentially uh, sensitive question. Do you ever get the sense that the people you talk to actually have the power to decide things or do they always have to check with above to get a final answer, even on simple matters? Mm. It, it is a tricky question and I'm not sure how to give neither you or the listeners a balanced answer to this question, at least not in this forum. Okay. Um, and I think it's important that, that to not to give the wrong impression in either direction. So 
I'll pass on this one for now and get back to you when we turn our mics off. All right. Well, then let's uh, talk about site visits outside the embassy. So uh, the Swedish government runs some humanitarian pro- uh, projects in the uh, North Korean countryside. Can you tell us about those projects and how you go about visiting them? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about um, Sweden's humanitarian support. To give you the setting, it's, it's actually channeled through the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, okay. CEDA for short. And the, ex- uh, the funding is exclusively provided to international humanitarian organizations operating in the DPRK. So it goes to foreign entities and not straight to the DPRK mm-hmm. government entities. Sweden has been one of the major donors of humanitarian aid to the DPRK over several years. Our position is that as long as we see that there are clear humanitarian needs on the ground, we will aim, at least, to keep providing humanitarian aid. And the projects, they cover quite a wide range of areas, including health, nutrition, water, sanitation, and hygiene. And as I said, I mean, the, the support is based on the needs that we identify on the ground. For our embassy, it's it's a great platform to visit many parts of the country mm. where SIDA is supporting these projects. Um, but it also gives us a platform to request to go to places where we are not yet offering our support, but there could be a potential need in the future. I mean, obviously, these kind of on-the-ground humanitarian projects are are very important and and very worthy, uh, especially in things like sanitation, water, health, etc. But speaking for myself here, I sometimes get a bit frustrated that, uh, you know, 20 years ago, I remember hearing an organization in Australia who was talking about doing simple things like uh, clean water wells so that the water supply didn't mix with the uh, the sewage of the of a given rural community or um, setting up electricity um, windmills so that people would have a, a proper electricity supply. And my frustration is that here we are almost 20 years later and we're still doing the same, you know, basic things in that country. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's a frustration that that we share as well, as I'm sure you have heard from from other people connected to other countries um, offering in the who's in the past offered humanitarian support. There is a a concern among donors that they don't need or they don't, don't get to do enough amounts of monitoring and they don't get enough access to projects uh, in the DPRK. We also share these concerns at times. But I find that it's also a bit of an unfortunate, almost catch-22 situation where less engagement means less access, which in turn sort of sets off a downward spiral. And and coming back to, to the problems that you raised, so, so, I mean, you can definitely argue that there are projects that should over time have been taken over by the DPRK government. From the Swedish side, we make the distinct distinction between humanitarian aid and development assistance. Mm-hmm. And in... Focusing on the humanitarian aid, the focus is on the needs of the people. And that has convinced us, at least, that as long as the needs remain, then then if we can, we should keep offering the humanitarian assistance. For me, the the question that comes up in my mind is uh, if you take a a small rural village and you go in there and you you help them to drill some good wells and get some water supply and and separate very clearly the the water input from the water output, so to speak, and help them with electricity grid and things like that. Once you've done that, is is it like you've done it once and that's it and you can move on to another village or do you have to come back in five years and sort of do it all over again? Like, is is it the same need cropping up again and again in these locations or is it? Uh, just that the whole country is so 
you know, there's so many people there that they haven't all been reached yet by by that humanitarian aid. No, that's definitely true. The, the last thing you said that we the the entire population has not yet been reached by humanitarian aid. I th- think that there are humanitarian experts who are more more well placed to to discuss this. From our experience, we have gone back years to to product sites years after they have been uh, the product has been concluded. Yep. Um, and when it comes to water facilities, for example, it seems that they seem to be fairly sustainable and and can last for a long time. But I know that there are also examples um, from the past where where it's been a slightly disappointing follow up. Now, when it comes to visiting these sites and also the new sites that you mentioned, do you do you ever get the feeling that uh, the foreign ministry counterparts would prefer you to stick to a set range of sites in or near Pyongyang? Well, I should let the the foreign ministry counterparts respond to that. Um, but I think from our end, we have been very clear that the only way for us to be able to continue to offering humanitarian support is to be allowed to keep evaluating existing projects, but also, as I said, be given a chance to identify needs in places which are not yet supporting any projects. And I've had quite a few discussions with DPRK counterparts about the need to, to go out in the country, because if I am to convince my politicians back in Stockholm that we should continue these operations, I cannot show them a, a glossy folder of Ryongmong Street. And are there any provinces or towns that you haven't been to? Uh, any areas that you are off limits as far as you know? I visited all the provinces except for Jagang province, and I believe that this is the province that is generally not open to foreigners. Um, And then, of course, I haven't been to all the cities in all the other provinces either, but we've traveled quite a bit of the country. Now, when you go, um, can you drive a car by yourself or is there an appointed driver uh, who works for the embassy? So we would normally go in our own cars. So we would bring the embassy cars and the international organizations would bring their cars, etc. But at least on these uh, work related field trips I would or we would bring um, the embassy driver if we're talking about driving around in Pyongyang on a, on a weekly or daily basis then then I drive myself what's it like driving in Pyongyang quite good there are not too many cars you yeah. can always find a parking space <laughs> right uh, is there any paid parking in North Korea or is it all free no you have to pay a small amount when you park at mainly I think the department stores and markets you have to pay a small fee uh, in cash in cash I think it's normally around 1001 per hour or unclear okay <laughs> right when you go back to get your car someone tells you this is how much you pay yeah exactly. okay fair enough and yeah now what about riding a bike in North Korea have you done that I have um, and I can but I quite rarely do it's a bit annoying because you have to get off the bike quite often to carry it or, or take it either on an overpass or ah. underpass in all the intersections, yeah. or you have to just walk it across on the on the pedestrian crossing. Oh, gosh. Well, getting back to, uh, to driving, actually, in North Korea, I remember when I was there uh, uh, last year in April uh, on a tour, and I noticed that um, the bus would be driving very, very quickly, very fast, and then it would slow down as it approached uh, a, a mural or mosaic or portrait or statue of uh, one of the Kim family. And there was a, I can't remember what the, the set speed was, but it, was, it may have been 20 kilometers an hour, 25 kilometers an hour. And then the car, the bus had to slow down to that speed until it had passed the, um, whatever the, you know, the object was. And then it could go back to its uh, 
high speed again, and that this was a, a token of respect. Um, when you drive, well, when your embassy driver drives you to a place, is it the same? Do you, have to, do you follow that same rule? Um, yeah, sure. So it's still in, in place at a number of, of places around the city and also in other um, cities around the country. It's not automatic, so it's not as soon as you see a portrait or a mural. It's clearly marked with the sign totally oh, the road speed sign. yeah okay. exactly and i think it varies between even 15 kilometers per hour up to 40 kilometers if it's a, right. a bit of a bigger road yes people slow down to some extent i wouldn't say people always slow down all the way down to the speed limit what's it like with uh, access to other organizations and institutes uh, that are based in north korea are there any that you have regular contact with or that you visit or that you meet with there are, for sure. We've talked about, a lot about the foreign ministry, but we also have contacts with other ministries, also a range of sub-departments within, this, in particular, the foreign ministry. But there are also various cult- cultural commissions, etc., that we that we meet on a, on a regular basis. And generally, I find that, at least with a bit of patience, it, it's possible to gain access to many entities that we ask to visit or meet with. Also, the less obvious ones that are not directly tied to our diplomatic work in the country. It will be more difficult if it's not like a direct bilateral issue mm. or interest, and it might require some more convincing from our side, but, but fairly often our, our requests are eventually at least granted. There are two institutions which we've asked several times to visit, but so far there has not been any result, and those are Rodong Shinmun and the Central Bank, which seems to be a mm. bit tricky to get access to. What are some things that have surprised you about working with North Koreans? You mentioned that there are six staff uh, at the embassy. Do you have uh, staff at your uh, at your home as well? At my home, no. Um, among these six staff, two are working with our uh, at their, at the Swedish residence, mm-hmm. but we still include them in the Team Sweden. Team Sweden. Uh, yeah, so what are some things that have surprised you about working with them? I'm not sure I would I would actually classify it as, as a surprise, but one of the biggest privileges um, with working in the DPRK has definitely been able to to create personal bonds, bonds with a number of, of persons in the country. And it doesn't matter really if it's government officials that we don't always see eye to eye with or local colleagues who sometimes have, we have to remind almost that they actually work for our embassy mm. as well. Um, or other Koreans that you meet in various contexts, or even children at the nursery in a remote area of the country. The links that you form with these people are the links that I surely will remember for, for a long time to come. Do you work with your local staff in Swedish or in English? A bit of both? Not so much Swedish. Um, we, we stick to English or, or very basic Korean because not all of them speak English. Ah. Um, the the interpreter whom you mentioned, does he speak any Swedish? No, they knew a few words that they have picked up over time, but but they don't speak Swedish. The uh, the local staff do they do they stay a long time at uh, working at the same embassy? Um, so generally they stay for either three or four years, depending a little bit on the position that mm-hmm. they have. Um, this can be in, this can be interrupted by factors such as retirement or, or other things, but, but generally it's three to four years. Okay, so they rotate as well, just like the diplomats do. Um, do you spend any informal time with your staff, like dinner or drinks with uh, with Team Sweden? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and I would say, I mean, we have plenty of informal moments, even during the working day. But in addition to that, we, we do take them out every now and then for lunch or drinks, or even to on small excursions to other parts of the country, with the, which they seem to, to appreciate quite mm. a lot. 
And last year we went to Mount Myohyang, yeah. where we went hiking for a bit, and we visited the International Friendship Exhibition. Ah, yes, that's the uh, the two buildings in which all the presents that were given to Kim Il Sung and Kim Jong Il are stored, right? Exactly. And uh, they always tell you if you spend one minute looking at every item, you'll be here for a million years or something like something that. Something like that. It's very it's very big. Um, when you take your staff out for dinner, um, what's their favorite food? Like, do they have a you know? Do they say, oh, you know? Let's go to, you know, uh, that pizza place or let's go to Pyongyang Rengmyeon or what's their preference? Well, I've taken them out for quite a few lunches and the pizza places have been appreciated a lot. Mm. They've been very excited when we've gone there um, and we've had a really good time. But mostly I think we have Korean food and, and then they seem to like the sort of quite normal food you would find in a Korean restaurant in Pyongyang. Have you ever gone to the uh, one of the craft beer places with them? Yes, we've been. At least we've been to the Taedonggang Beer Factory, which also has a, a little restaurant where you can have the different kinds of beer. That was fun. How is the... Uh, what's your opinion of North Korean beer? I like it. I've lived... I spent quite a few years in, in China before coming here, so I think I've gotten used to the sort of quite light mm. beer with not too much taste. And in that respect, I think the, at least the Taedonggang beer is, is a very good option. So overall, what's um, you've been there for, uh, for two years now. So what surprised you about living and working in Korea? A lot of things, I would say. Um, but I think before I went, I was under the impression that I would spend my days or at least my free time in some sort of candlelight and I would have time to pick up <laughs> a few new languages and maybe learn an instrument, mm -hmm. um, which was, of course, completely wrong. Um, and really, the days have been as busy with work and, and exercise and socializing as in other, any other posting around the world. Um, but I've been positively surprised still how quickly Pyongyang turned into being a home for me. Mm. Um, and as much as I miss my husband who doesn't live there with me, and as much as I sometimes long to get out of the country for a bit, I'm, I'm also happy that every time I, I come back to my flat, it, it feels like a home. Uh, so how do you spend your free time in Pyongyang? I think I, Pyongyang really offers a, a good variety of, of things to do on your free time. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very sporty community, and this goes, I think, both for foreigners and also for our local friends. Um, so you can go to the gym, you can go running or swimming or play tennis, badminton, volleyball. Is this with foreigners only or are there local Koreans involved as well? Um, maybe mostly with foreigners, but you will definitely be in the same places as, as Koreans for most of these activities um, as well. So myself, I really come to enjoy doing Taekwondo mm. um, as well lately. Um, it's a great form of exercise and it's sort. It's also a good sort of mental break from from the working day. Right. It's a it's a kind of discipline, isn't it? Exactly. And and you get. It's also a really good way to spend time with uh, the Korean mm. the master that we have. Do you go out for picnics along the uh, the Taedong Riverside or barbecues in Morambong Park, like the locals seem to do? Um, yeah, we do. We sometimes get our acts together as foreigners as well, and we we bring our picnic baskets and blankets, and then we go out. And try to do that in places where the Koreans go. So yeah. we get to, to spend a bit of time together with them. And they're always welcoming and cheerful and happy. and Happy to come and try some Swedish food? Yeah, to the extent that I have that on my picnic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't know. I thought you'd all walk around with meatballs and, uh, and smoked salmon. Oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> so on the, on the whole, then, how is contact with locals? Do you ever just approach someone on the street and ask them something like, you know, excuse me, where's where's a Taekwondo hall or, you know, where's the train station? 
yeah. um, I don't speak that much Korean, but so I say that the sort of the interaction on the street is more about having a very brief but happy interaction. You wave to a kid or the kid waves to you and you say hello and, and very simple things like that. The sort of more, a little bit more in-depth uh, contacts is, is definitely with, with people that we in one way or the other get to know. I should say that it doesn't always mean that it's a positive interactions. And, and I think since coming to Pyongyang, I've had tougher meetings and tougher discussions that I could, could imagine. And it's been frustrating at times when we haven't been able to find, find common ground on, mm. on certain issues. And it's also been disappointing and, and even saddening at some times when, when the turn of events hasn't really gone or turned out as we expected. But with all this being said, it's, it's really, or it is, a, the privilege of a lifetime, I think, to, to form bonds with with the Korean people, even if whether it's officials or colleagues or, or any other that we that we get to meet um, and to see people behind the stereotype, if you wish, of the country that we often get from from the outside. It must be uh, um, it must be difficult then when you think that once you leave, it's almost impossible to contact them again. It's not like you can just send a, a postcard or an email or or a box with things from Sweden, is it? It's not, not that simple. No, that's, that's definitely true. And, and it will be one of the challenges with leaving one day. That I, there are a number of individuals that I will miss dearly, and it makes it more difficult to leave because you know that it will be very difficult, at least, to, to keep in touch with them. Yeah. Um, I will miss my foreign friends as well, but, but we have <laughs> many ways to interact with each other. Right, right? that's much easier, so yeah. Have you been able to go inside a North Korean apartment and have a look? We have, when we go on the field visits, uh, we often also visit the beneficiaries of, mm. of the projects. So then we go inside. So I've probably been in much more, many more apartments on the countryside than I have been in Pyongyang. And would they be high-rise apartments in the countryside also? Not high-rise, but we have visited beneficiaries who've lived both in these single-story traditional houses, yeah. but in some areas also in these I think they're normally around five stories sort mm. of older style construction five story with no lift I think exactly right? yeah. yeah and lots of uh, especially in the countryside you see lots of uh, solar panels being used in, in homes don't mm. you yeah yeah uh, did you find out any anything about that or, or talk to uh, a local resident you know what they are able to power with that so, uh, solar power panel not to any larger extent but I would assume that it helps in, in powering whatever electric machinery or devices that they, they might have. I don't think it's enough to, to heat a house, for example. It mm. doesn't take you that far, but it's enough to maybe power a few lamps or your cell phone or things like that. Right, charge a phone, because there's lots of people with phones now, aren't there? Yeah, there are. Um, have you seen that increase while you were there? I mean, I know it's, it's certainly gone up a lot since, what, 2010, but... Uh, do all of your staff, for example, all have a phone? They do, and they seem to have several phones as well. Really, yeah. multiple phones? Yeah, that's it's kind of surprising, isn't it? There's only one. Wait, are there more? Than, is there more than one network? I don't even know. My understanding is that there is multiple networks, and some are designed for the foreign community, and some for the for the local community. Um, I think also the ones who are working with us, some of them have a, sort of a work phone, and mm. then their private phone just as many of us um, would have. It's difficult to evaluate if the number of phones have gone up just by sort of looking at the street, but, but I would say that the number of smartphones in Pyongyang has probably increased. 
that in the beginning when I came, you saw more people with these this old style. Uh, right, the clamshell phone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now it's more common to see um, people who have a smartphone instead. But it's still not everyone. I mean, many people are still on the older style phone. Do they take photos as well, as, as often as South Koreans do? I mean, have you been in a, in a selfie with a, a North Korean friend or colleague? Yeah, I have, um, definitely. I, it's not as common as here. I don't know if it is anywhere in the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, pretty high here. Yeah, yeah. it's very high. Uh, so you're here in Seoul now to take part in a special program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I've just spent, I think it was 10 days here in Seoul, participating in something with the name Emerging Leaders Fellowship. Um, it's a yearly program which gathers primarily academics and diplomats for long days of discussion on issues related to the Korean Peninsula. And I have to say it's it's been a great injection of inspiration and every time I visit Seoul I must admit that I get a little bit jealous about the many avenues for interaction that you have here with South Korean counterparts but also members of the international community um, as interesting as the work is in Pyongyang we are a bit more limited in this sense over there what um, what kind of things do you learn on the uh, the emerging leaders program so this year and I think it's been the case in the past as well. The focus has been on unification issues or reunification issues, that they would say in, in DPRK. Yeah. Um, so we met with a range of South Korean counterparts from various ministries and other authorities. And also had it's been great discussions among these, I think we were 21 people from 18 countries. Oh, wow. So this has really offered a good chance to exchange views with others. That does sound very interesting. Uh, I understand you're, you're leaving Pyongyang for good quite soon, but that this will not be the end of you working on Korean issues. No, that's true. I'm wrapping up the posting in September, but I definitely hope it won't be the last time that I that I visit Pyongyang. Um, but at least in, in the fall, I will go back to Stockholm and I will join our uh, DPRK team at the ministry. That's right. And actually, we're going to uh, to hold this uh, interview until after you've left so that, it, so that there's no awkwardness. Right. <laughs> okay. So uh, thank you once again to our special guest today, Martina Oberi-Somoji. Oh, dear. Uh, I won't be... Uh, doing well in Sweden, <laughs> for coming on the NK News Podcast. Thanks so much for coming in. Don't forget, listeners, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean research, news, and analysis, and we hope to see you there. And you can send feedback, comments, questions, or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast is produced by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chatter, Carol, and Christina Lee. Lastly, a reminder that one random reviewer per week will win a free NK News membership for one year. So please review us after listening and you might win. And you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Share this podcast with your friends or it might not go on much longer. So please get that link and send it out to people. Thanks very much and listen again next time. <laughs>